Well, Christianity is a faith that encourages questions. It encourages investigations. It, it encourages people to explore whether or not it's based on mythology or legend or make-believe or wishful thinking, or whether it's based on a solid foundation of historical truth. Let me read you the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Now, my experience has been that a lot of people have what I call spiritual sticking points, questions or objections to the faith that are, are holding them up or sticking points in their journey toward God, or they're a follower of Jesus, but yet there's a sticking point that keeps them from fully experiencing uh, God. Well, we want to help you get beyond whatever sticking point is in your life today. So we're going to do something a little different than normal. Uh, we're going to call this Barriers to Belief. And we're going to answer some of the sticking points that y'all, or all y'all, I'm trying to get my Texas uh, vernacular right, all y'all have uh, submitted. Last weekend, uh, we asked you if you have a question or a sticking point to send us a video asking the question or to submit a written question. We got inundated with fantastic questions. And we're going to consider answers to those questions this morning. But I also want to encourage you. Maybe you've got a sticking point, and it's holding you up in your journey. We want to give you a chance this morning to ask us that question. So uh, during the service, at some point, I'll invite you to come. We'll have two microphones here, and uh, you can just give us your first name and uh, ask us your question, and we'll try to help you get resolution of the sticking point. Now, to help me do this, I've invited my good friend Mark Middleberg to be with me. Uh, Mark is a best-selling author of a bunch of books on the topic of evidence for the faith or answers to tough questions. In fact, uh, two of the books are, um, yeah. Thank you. Our Confident Faith, which deals with 20 arrows of evidence that point toward the truth of Christianity. And this one, I love this title, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And uh, answers. <laughs> I noticed it says with answers. That's good. <laughs> you don't just want the questions, right? Um, so Mark is, uh, has a graduate degree in philosophy of religion, and uh, we're sort of joined at the brain. We've been uh, ministry partners for 32 years. And um, uh, in fact, when I was a young Christian, and Mark is the one who mentored me in theology. So I, anything I know, I know from Mark. So I wanted him to be here to be able to help us all get past these sticking points. So please, let's welcome Mark. Thank you. And we got, as I said, Mark, just great <clears throat> questions from people. And I think they reflect um, the kind of questions that many of us have. Uh, so I'm going to get started and jump right in. Um, it's great to be back to the woodlands, by the way. Yeah, yeah, you were here once before. Well, especially I live in Colorado. We had a record-setting blizzard about three days ago, so I'm really glad to be at the woodlands. Yeah. A little warmth, it's yeah. good. I was there. Yeah. It was bad. It was, yeah, really it was bad. Uh, what was that, one wind gust, 92 miles an hour? 97 miles an hour. 97. And there were, like, just near me, 1,000 people stranded in their cars in the snow. So 4,000 people living at the airport. Do I have to airport? explain what snow is? No, they, they get it. They've heard about okay. it. Yeah, it's a, it's a nasty thing. You it's can look it up thing. on the Internet. It's uh, white <laughs> stuff. It's hard to explain. But 
You know, when I lived in Colorado, uh, when it was going to snow, people got all excited. Oh, it's going to snow. I'm from Chicago. When it's going to snow, you go, oh, no, no, not again. <laughs> but they love it out there. Crazy people. It's probably the marijuana. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's start with video number one. All right. Hey, my name is Gus, and uh, I got a quick question for you. What is truth? That's it. It's a great question. I mean, Pilate asked, Pontius Pilate asked that question. What is truth? How would you define truth? Yeah, unfortunately, Jesus didn't answer. He walked away before Jesus gave an answer. It would have been nice, right? Yeah. But it's a really good and, like you say, a foundational question. And it, at first, it seems obvious. Don't we all know what truth is? It's a word we use all the time, but rarely define. And then you start realizing we don't all you have the same definition, especially when someone says to you, well, that's your truth, but I have my truth. You know, what does that mean? And I don't think it is very, it's, I don't think that makes a lot of sense because really what truth is, is what's real. It's, it's what is. And so when someone starts saying, well, you have your truth and I have my truth and they contradict, but they're all true. And, that's nonsense. I mean, there's a reality out there, and finding truth means you're finding what's real. And, uh, but sometimes people play games with it, and uh, I, I'll use an example, because when you get into this relativistic mindset, it would be like if you went out on uh, Interstate 99, and you decide, I'm going to be a relativistic highway driver, and you get your Mustang out there. And what you do is you see that sign that says 99 next to the highway, and you decide, that's my speed limit. This is going to be fun, right? And so I, I can drive 99, and that's my truth, and no big deal, until you meet a Texas highway patrolman, which is very likely, right? And he's going, what do you think you're doing driving? You know, you're almost driving 100 miles an hour. Well, sir, that my truth is that's my speed limit. And you say that. Is he going to say, oh, well, then it's okay, right? No, he's not going to say that. He's going to say, don't play this my truth nonsense game with me. What, are you in some philosophy 101 class? You know, grow up. Uh, you, it's your job to know the speed limit. The speed limit is 60 or whatever it is. And uh, here's my truth. You get a $300 ticket. So, you know, reality has a way of overcoming those relativistic <laughs> ideas. And I would just urge all of us to realize truth is what's real, and our job is to try to figure it out, and especially in spiritual realms. You know, because what people do is they, they think, well, it's, we're talking about invisible stuff now, so I can decide what it's, what's going to be true for me, and whatever I want to believe about God becomes true for me. And I'm going, no, there is a reality about God, and whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you've studied it or not, it's true, you know, independent of our thoughts, because you can sincerely think whatever you want, and some of us are sincerely wrong. So what we need to do is study and follow the evidence wherever it leads, like you did as a skeptic and a seeker, and follow that evidence. And I believe, because I believe Christianity is true, you follow that evidence, it'll lead you to Christ. So this is called the correspondence theory of um, truth. Uh, truth is that which corresponds to reality. And, and our that's kind of common sense. Kind of common sense. You have to discover yeah. what reality is. Yeah. Okay, great. Good foundation. Let's go to video number three. How do we know for sure that everything in the Bible is true? How can the Bible be so perfect and so true if it's written by such imperfect people like us humans? 
Okay, another foundational question. Uh, the Bible is uh, that which we as Christians base our faith on um, in terms of what is reality. How do we know? How can we trust it? First, let me give you a common answer that I don't think is a good answer, and it's the one I got when I was in college. I got into one of those philosophy classes where I had a, a professor who challenged our faith. He would say, you know, you, a lot of you believe this book, the Bible. Well, guess what? There's some wisdom and good ideas in here, but it's not the inspired word of God. It's full of myths and mistakes, and he was really challenging it. And so I went to one of my teachers at the church I was in at that time, uh, and I just said, I, I need some reinforcements. My professor says, you know, this is not the inspired word of God. He said, oh, that's easy. And I said, easy, really? And he said, yeah, it's easy. It's right here in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, the scripture is inspired, and it's God-breathed God and useful for teaching. I said, I know that verse, and I believe that verse, but you can't answer the challenge against this book by quoting from it. He said, well, why not? And I said, well, that's circular reasoning. He goes, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, give me some outside evidence. He, he said, why would I want to do that when this is the word of God? I'm going, that's the question. <laughs> How do you know it's the word of God? He said, well, it says right here. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> it was so frustrating. That really is that circular reasoning. And again, I think that verse is true, but how do we know it's true? I think we need to, have to, go, to, or need to go to outside evidence that supports us and, and shows us that it is a reliable book. For instance, we can look at secular history, you know, from Greek and Roman and Jewish sources, other sources, that confirms what the scripture writers have said. And you say, okay, where we can verify it it, it squares up. Uh, we can also go to archaeology. A lot of people bet against the Bible. They say, you know, it says in the Old Testament there's this group of people called the Hittites. And for a long time people said, we, we've never found any evidence for the Hittites. We don't believe the Hittites. We think this is Old Testament fiction. And then guess what? Oops, an archaeologist dug up the Hittites. And it's like, oh, okay, well, the Bible got lucky that time. And then they'll do it again. They'll say, well, Pilate, the guy who tried Jesus in the New Testament. Um, we think that's New Testament fiction because there's no evidence for Pilate. Didn't exist. Oops, they dig up the Pilate stone. And there's the inscription with his name and where he served, and it confirms what the Scripture says. And this happens over and over. This has happened thousands of times to the point where I just tell people, I said, just stop betting against the Bible. You're going to lose. The Bible is true, and it, it's been confirmed over and over. I'd also add that Jesus, the one who we know from history, you know, was this uh, amazing person who did miracles, who rose from the dead. The guy with the credentials said, every word in this is inspired by God. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but these words will never pass away. And I would just add one more thing, and that is test it with your life. You know, just, I know, Lee, when you were a doubter, a seeker, uh, your wife brought you to a church, and I know you've said that a lot of what drew you in was the wisdom of this book. and you know, Beyond you, human wisdom. Yeah, and, and it, you try it, and your relationships get better. You try it, your marriage gets better. You try, so, I mean, there is divine wisdom here. Test it, and you'll see that the Lord is good, and you'll see that this is God's Word. The young man also said, how, how can you trust it when 
mere humans, fallen people wrote it. And the answer to that is answered by Peter, where he says, I think it's 2 Peter 1, he says, you know, you need to understand that when we write Scripture, those of us who are apostles and prophets, those of them that were apostles, he said, it's not just mere people writing our own ideas. He said, we are moved along by the Holy Spirit in a very special and unique way. So what we have is imperfect vessels who have kind of opened up in a special way to the Holy Spirit, and it's God-inspiring what they write. You also have fulfillment of uh, prophecies uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament in yep. a way that defies mathematic, uh, mathematical odds. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, prophecies about Jesus. I mean, you have Micah like 400 years before Jesus appears on earth predicting that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Tiny little village. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's not like saying he'll be born in Houston. It's like saying he'll be born in Tomball, you know. <laughs> it's, it's like you're picking a real small, specific. What good can come from Tomball? That's yeah, well, a, that's a, you oh, said, that was Nazareth, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's Nazareth. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, all these, you know, Isaiah 700 years before the time of Christ predicted that he would be pierced for our iniquities. And what's interesting about that is crucifixion wouldn't even be invented for hundreds of years after he wrote that. I imagine the Holy Spirit's leading him to write, pierced, pierced, what do you mean pierced? You know, well, write it down. Yeah. But uh, then through history, all of a sudden the Romans come along, they use this thing called crucifixion. He's pierced for our iniquities. Uh, there's a book called uh, The Historical Jesus by our friend Dr. Gary Habermas, a historian who um, points out 110 facts about the life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus from ancient sources outside <clears throat> the Bible, confirming uh, the contours of Jesus' uh, life from the Gospels we have. So we have a lot of evidence for the reliability of the Bible, but yep. let me follow it up with a question that Chris wrote in. He said, uh, how do we know the Gospels are a reliable account since A, we don't have any originals, and B, we don't really know who the original authors were? So let me address that I wrote a book sure. on this called In Defense of Jesus. And um, in answer to the first question, yeah, we don't have the original copies. Uh, they've long since dissolved into dust, uh, as all ancient writings have. It's not just unique with the Bible. Um, so how can we be confident that what we hold today is reflective of what the original copy said? Well, because we have a multiplicity uh, of handwritten copies of the Gospels and, and parts of the Bible. That, you know, 5,800 in the Greek handwritten copies, and then another uh, 25,000 in other um, languages. So we have a proliferation of, far beyond any other secular source from the ancient world. Uh, and, and so what scholars are able to do then is cross-compare them to determine what the original said with great confidence. Now, are there some differences? Yes, there's some misspellings along the way. Um, you know, I think it's 70% of the differences between them, uh, the handwritten copies, are spelling errors that are so minor that or they grammar. don't even get, or you know, grammar, that don't even get translated <clears throat> into English. Uh, like sometimes John is spelled with one N, sometimes with two Ns. Well, the point is it's never Mary. Uh, it's always a John. So um, there is not one cardinal doctrine of the church that it is all jeopardized by any differences between the handwritten copies that we have remaining of the Bible. The second thing he says is we don't know who the authors were. Well, actually, the uniform testimony of the ancient church is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were behind those gospels. There is not one 
manuscript or one bit of testimony by anybody from ancient history ascribing any of those gospels to anybody else. Um, and in fact, we have Papias and Irenaeus who confirm the original authorship. So I think we can have, uh, even though technically the gospels are anonymous, uh, we can have confidence that they're attributable to the original authors. You know, I would just add too, it's helpful when you talk about 5,800 manuscripts, it's like, that sounds impressive, but compared to what? Mm. And it's helpful to know, for instance, uh, take Plato. Um, you know, we only have about seven or eight manuscript copies that we base everything we know about Plato on those copies. And, by the way, they're like 800 years after the original writing. So, you know, we're basing it all on that compared to 5,800 copies of the New Testament. In Greek, the Greek ones. Yeah, just the Greek ones. And the first fragment of one of those was found in e all the way over in Egypt about, is a fragment of the Gospel of John about 30 years after John wrote John. So, you know, we have early and multiple manuscripts. In fact, Daniel Wallace from Dallas Seminary said that on average, comparing all the other ancient works of, of any kind, to the New Testament, on average, we have about a thousand times as much manuscript evidence for the New Testament as any other ancient writing, on average. So by comparison, I mean, I just tell people, if you can't trust the New Testament, you cannot trust any ancient writing of any yeah. kind. Now, there's another follow-up that's challenging. Uh, someone else wrote in and said, what about the Book of Mormon? They said the Book of Mormon has several people who made statements about its veracity and signed those statements and maintained their testimony until their death. So isn't that sufficient, he says, to take the Book of Mormon seriously? Good question. Yeah, I, you know, when I did my investigation as an atheist into Christianity, I didn't just look at Christianity. I looked at Islam. I looked at Hinduism. I looked at Mormonism, a lot of different faiths. And so I read the Book of Mormon, and, and I wrote a letter to the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian. And I said, there are certain claims made in this book about historical events that supposedly happened in the Americas in the ancient world. Can you tell me what archaeology has to say about that? And I got a letter back from the Smithsonian that said, there is no connection. There is no, that's a quote, there is no direct connection between the claims of the Book of Mormon and the findings of archaeology. Well, that's totally the opposite yeah. of what I have in the Bible. So that told me, golly, maybe I can't trust this book. Yeah, with, with the Bible, you have quarterly journals coming out with new archaeological yeah. confirmation all the time. So that is very different. Also, with the Book of Mormon, you don't have the secular kinds of historical accounts that affirm what was taught. It's the opposite. Uh, and the Book of Mormon makes claims about peoples that lived in the Central Americas during that time, and they said they were of Israeli descent. And yet DNA studies of people in that very land shows that they have Asian descent. So scientifically, it doesn't add up. So there's real problems with this. And then I would also go back to his question. Uh, what about these original witnesses? And what you had is there was a, a set, he mentions the eight. There are actually three closer ones, a uh, set of three witnesses and then another set of eight who all affirmed that they had seen the golden plates that the angel brought to Joseph Smith from which he translated the Book of Mormon. They had all seen them, and they all went to their graves standing for that testimony. Well, that sounds pretty good until you dig in a little bit. And here's, when you dig in a little bit, the first thing you find out is all 
what is it, 11 of those witnesses left Mormonism. They all abandoned Joseph Smith. They said, enough of this. They went other directions. Now, they didn't specifically refute what they had claimed earlier about seeing those golden tablets, but they didn't stick with the faith. Why, why would that be if it was true? But secondly, here's what's really interesting. When you find out what they really said about, quote-unquote, seeing the golden tablets, they all say, well, he had them covered up. He was in a room by himself, you know, and claimed to be translating this from these golden tablets that an angel brought, which, by the way, after he was done, the angel, according to Joseph Smith, whisked them away. So they're gone. So, so they, he never let them come in the room and see the tablets. What they did is they said, you've got these tablets, let's see them. He said, you want to see them? Here's what we'll do. Let's go out in the woods and pray. And then through the eyes of faith, and this is what they said, we saw them through the eyes of faith. That's how they saw those tablets. It'd be like we're in a court of law, and I'm the attorney, and I say, I have proof that this guy is guilty. I have the gun right here under this blanket. And then, you know, they say, okay, show us the gun. You say, well, tell you what, let's go out in the woods and we'll pray, and through the eyes of faith, you'll see this gun. It's like, what? <laughs> Just show it to us. Well, Joseph Smith never saw, no one really saw these, and I think they're fictional plates. I don't think there's any evidence that they were there. And so I just say that with respect and love for my Mormon friends, you know, a lot of great people, but they need to study more deeply and question what they've been taught and get to a true biblical faith uh, yeah. rather than what they've been taught. You know, one more thing, the, the, Paul warned in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, he said, you know, watch out. He said, even if we, meaning someone claiming to be an apostle like Paul, or an angel from heaven, which is how Mormonism supposedly started, he said, even if a, an apostle or an angel from heaven, if they come and give you a different gospel, let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. Reject that kind of teaching because they're contradicting the biblical gospel. Well, that's exactly what Mormonism does. It teaches that there are many gods and you can become a god. And I mean, it is not So the, the theology of what is in the Book of Mormon contradicts the theology that we find in the Bible that we know has historical credentials. Absolutely. It, um, I, I think the bottom line to this is, you know, we both have great friends who are Mormons. And um, uh, I think the bottom line is a person can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. And right. I think as you say, it's important to try to get to the bedrock of where does the evidence really point. Yeah. Let's go on to um, uh, video question number four. Hello, Lee. My name is David. I got a question. Why did God allow evil throughout the whole history of the world? Why does he allow evil to happen? A question that I get asked sometimes is um, people that are struggling with their faith is God is so good. Uh, why does he allow all the corrupt things that have happened in this world, including, you know, children being hurt or abused and, and things of that nature. Yeah, this really is the number one sticking point uh, for people in America. Mark and I have both commissioned scientific polling uh, that shows that when you ask uh, uh, Americans, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, what would you ask him? By far, this is the number one question that people ask. Yeah. Of course, I like to follow up that question by saying, of all the questions in the world, why would you ask that one? And often, 
Uh, people who ask this question are not just looking for an intellectual answer. I mean, I've given a five-point sermon here at Woodlands Church that you can look up online that goes through the whole academic reasons why God allows pain and suffering in the world. Uh, but people, most people who ask this question are asking out of their own personal pain. They've gone through a tragedy in their own life. They're hurting, and they're not really looking for an intellectual response. They're looking for someone to be Jesus to them, someone to put their arm around them and to love them and to encourage them, and that's what the church uh, is all about. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize that if you're in the middle of pain and something bad has happened, uh, I, I hope some of what we say is helpful, but you need people, you need encouragement, you might need counseling, you, you know, you may need some of the care ministries here at the church more than just the kinds of answers yeah. we can give. But I mean, what, would you, what would you say? Well, uh, first, there were really two questions there. The first guy asked about the problem of evil, and the second one was more pain and suffering, and they're, they're related. Yeah. But the first one's a little broader. Maybe I'll start with that, okay. and maybe yeah. you want to go to the second one. Uh, on the problem of evil, a lot of people say, well, if God, you know, it says in Genesis, everything God created is good. And yet there's evil. Did, did God create evil? And the answer is no. What he did do is create people who had the potential to create or, or to bring evil by disobeying him and turning away from him. Now, why would he set it up that way? Uh, well, I think he, the answer to that is he wanted real people that could love him and respond to him and have a real relationship with him. He wanted people, not puppets. And he could have just created, you know, robots that would just be programmed to, you know, do everything. But, you know, that'd be like being married to a Stepford wife, you know. It's just, mm -hmm. they're not really free to be real, authentic people. God didn't want Stepford wives. He didn't want puppets. He wanted real people who could really love him. But think about this. A lot of people don't think about the fact that real love always entails freedom not to love. There is no such thing as forced love. You know, that's an oxymoron. If it's forced, it's not love. If it's real love, it's not forced. It's free. Uh, and my wife, Heidi, who I think is watching today from Colorado, um, she and I have been married 35 years. The reason Heidi's love means so much to me is she chose to be married to me, and she's chosen to stay with me for 35 years. And same, you know, I chose to be with her and choose to stay with her. We love each other, but it's, no one forced that. It's voluntary. That, that, that's part of the nature of real love. God wanted beings that could really love him, but that meant creating, creating beings who could reject that love and walk away from him. And unfortunately, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. <clears throat> they turned away from God. They, in that uh, step, they brought sin and corruption into their own lives, but into the whole human race. Thanks, Adam and Eve. Um, but before we get too hard on them, we need to look in the mirror and say, but I've contributed. I've done my own sinning, and we all have. So we are people who have fallen away from God. We've turned the other way, and yet he still loves us, and he still is wooing us back. He still he, he made provision for our sins by sending Jesus to die for us. He loves us that much. So I think, how did evil get in the world? Why is there evil? Because God knew if he wanted real people who could love him, he had to create a world with that possibility. And we, unfortunately, brought that possibility into the world. So in other words, I could take my hand and I could hold a gun and choose to shoot you, or I can take that hand and offer you, a hungry person, uh, some food. 
Um, Same but it, him. Yeah. It's a little disingenuous to blame God for the choice that I make yeah. uh, to shoot you yeah. if I make that choice. And one choice. more thing, if I could add on this, you know, a lot of people ask me this. I got it in the line at, uh, at the bookstore afterwards in the last service. People say, well, but, but if God, you know, God is supposed to know everything ahead of time, if he knew that we were going to fall away, mm then why would he still go through with the plan? Why didn't he say, oh, this isn't going to work out so well? And my question to them, it's usually a person who has some little kids with them. I go, why did you have kids? You knew you were bringing sinners into the world, you know, <laughs> right? All the Every par parent of all a two-year-old knows that. Yeah, people are <laughs> weeping out there. Um, but yeah, we all knew that. And we knew that there was the danger of bringing someone into the world that would bring more pain and, more, you know, that there would be a, an estranged relationship. But we went ahead and had kids anyway. We, we had families because we knew there was also the potential for great joy and love and relationship. And, and I hope that's the way it's working out, or if it hasn't yet, I hope it will. Um, but as parents, we make that calculation. God just made the perfect calculation because he did know the future, and he said, yes, there will be pain, there will be rebellion, but there will be redemption, and there will be a new community of people who go against the stream, against the tide of humanity to follow me and honor me and love me and serve me, and there will be woodland churches uh, full of people who who choose to follow me, and it's worth it. And God in his omniscience and his love said, I will still bring people you know, into this world, and it's going to be good. And so God is not the author of evil, but he can use it for good. Yeah. Uh, he can use Romans 8, 28, which people throw out. God can cause good to emerge from the circumstances of anybody who is he a promises that for his followers that's right so yeah. that's one thing and the promise of heaven the promise of a place where there'll be no suffering and, and no tears and so forth that, that that he opens the door of heaven to all who follow him um, so those are you know promises of God and the other thing about Jesus is he unlike a lot of teachings of some Eastern religions that say that, oh, suffering doesn't really exist. It's, it's an illusion. It's maya. It's just an illusion. You just, no, Jesus was honest. Jesus said, um, in this world, you're going to have suffering. Why? Because we live in a sin-stained world. But he said, have courage. I have overcome the world. So yeah. in other words, we have hope in him. Yeah. So when people are suffering, uh, we had a good question in the last service. You know, does that mean I did something bad? I sinned against God. I'm, you know, he's pay, he's punishing me. Um, I think God can use circumstances in our lives, but but to do that calculation is not a good one. In fact, Jesus very explicitly in, in the book of Luke, it records someone asking him that. They said, you know, there, there was something that had happened recently there where a tower had fallen. I think it killed 18 people. And they said, well, those people must have been more sinful, right? Jesus said, no. You know, it, like, don't do that math. He said, they, you know, they, yeah, they were sinners that needed a Savior like you. And unless everyone repents, you know, they're going to be in trouble. So Jesus, you know, he didn't, when someone's suffering, he wants to be there to comfort and help them. And Jesus is the one who suffered in ways that none of us ever will. And I think that's helpful. If you're in the middle of this or you struggle with hard things in your life, to remember that Jesus, you know, the sinless Son of God, died on a cross and was ridiculed and shamed and tortured. And not only that, had the spiritual rift 
between him and the Father as he bore the weight of our sins. He suffered in ways we can't imagine, and I love that passage. Uh, there's actually two passages in Hebrews 3 and 4 that talk about how he is a merciful high priest. He's a, you know, he, he can comfort us in our time of need because he's gone through it. He's been there. And if I could quote from uh, a book called The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, um, you interviewed Peter Kraft. Yeah. And I love, I mean, this is maybe a paraphrase, but he said, ultimately, the, the answer to the problem of pain and suffering is not an answer. It's a person. Yeah. It's the person of Jesus who, uh, you know, he, he doesn't promise to take you out of the pain, but he promises to walk with you through it and to help you. And yes, ultimately, in heaven, he'll make things right. Uh, and maybe he'll answer the prayers along the way, he, you know, but he may still suffer. And so it's, we live in a fallen world, and we bear the, the, the scars of that, but ultimately he'll make it right. Yeah. Let's say if you do have a question that's a sticking point, not just Bible trivia, um, but something that's really holding you up in your journey, we have two microphones. Or are, a friend. Or for a friend, yeah. Maybe you have a friend, and you're afraid they're going to ask you a certain question. You kind of want to be prepared. There's a couple of microphones and folks at those. Uh, if you want to go ahead and go there, um, and we'll take a couple from each side as time allows. Uh, and while that's happening, in the meantime, I'll read another question that came in from a guy named Bob. And this is a common question. It's a great question. It comes at this time of year as Easter is approaching. He says, uh, if God uh, was removed from his cross near sunset of Good Friday, and he rose at dawn on Sunday, then that's not three days and nights, um, as the Jews reckon time, which is from sunset to sunset, he says. Uh, and that's a good question. I mean, if, you know, where are the three days and nights if indeed um, uh, that's a chronology? You wrote the book Case for Easter. I think you address that, don't I you? I do, yeah. I mean, it's an important question. And here's what you find when you dig deeper and do the research. Uh, Rabbi uh, Eleazar ben Azariah, uh, who was a tenth descendant from Ezra, so in other words, he's a knowledgeable rabbi from the ancient world, points out that in the ancient world, in Jewish world, <coughs> A day and a night is called an ona, O-N-A-H. And he said, any portion of an ona is as of the whole. So in other words, any portion of a day is considered as the whole day. And so we have Jesus on the cross on Friday in the tomb on uh, Saturday and then resurrected Sunday morning. That's parts of three days. And so according to the uh, Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, as time was reckoned in that era, that is considered a fulfillment of three days. And that's, an, it's called an idiom. They were, you know, Jesus was using a common idiom of the time that people understood in that way. So they, they yeah. didn't have the conflict we do when we try to put a literalism on right. it today. It's like the, the, the 12 disciples were often referred to as the 12. Even after Judas was gone, they yeah. were really only 11, but they still... You had the label, the 12. And uh, it was so funny, yesterday Lee and I were at lunch and we were talking about this and I, I said, you know, it's like the Big Ten in sports. Um, we looked, actually Googled it and said, how many basketball teams are on, in the Big Ten right now? And we saw the list, guess how many there are? 14. <laughs> so we, you know. We call it the Big Ten. Yeah, they don't call it the Big 14 now. <laughs> uh, it's still the Big Ten and yet there's right now 14 teams and that fluctuates but it's a label we all kind of understand and use and don't demand like scientific accurate accuracy on it. And I think the same is true. Yeah, it's always as understood in that era as exactly. being an ONA portion thereof. Okay, we have a question over here. Uh, yes, Hi. I'm Tiffany. 
And in the Bible, it tells us in 3.16 that Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What about those who don't have access to the word of God or access to know who Jesus is? Are they condemned to an eternity in hell because they didn't know him? Yeah. That's a great question. In fact, we had a video on that that I forgot to show, uh, and it's a very important and common question. Mark, how would you begin to answer it? Well, I'd start with the verses that Lee quoted at the beginning from uh, Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, if you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open. Ask, you know. And it, so he really made this promise that people that really go after him, uh, that follow the amount of light they have, that he'll give the light they need to know him in a personal way. Um, and how much they need, uh, the Bible is not super clear about. So, um, but ultimately, if they find God and find his forgiveness, it's through what Christ did. I mean, salvation, you quoted, I think it was John 14, 6, Jesus said, um, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So salvation is only through Christ. But there are people in various parts of the world who we don't know how much detail they need. There are people in Hebrews who are mentioned as being saved from the Old Testament who didn't know the name specifically of Jesus. So, yeah, so well, how much do you need to know? So yeah, that's a challenging question. But uh, Lee and I met a man years ago who was uh, an Indian man raised in India. His name was Mahindra. And uh, I love this example because I think he's a model of what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7. And specifically, he was raised in Hinduism, but he was just like a precocious kid that asked too many questions, and he was always challenging what his parents taught him. And they got nervous. They said, we got to really train this wayward son of ours uh, to keep him in the Hindu faith. So they hired, they, they were a wealthy family, they hired several gurus just to train their kid, Mahindra, uh, on Hinduism. The problem was, even as a young boy, he was asking too hard a questions, and the Hindu gurus had no answers either. And finally, he just kept seeking and saying, I got to know, I want to know who the true God is. And finally, he was in a city somewhere where he encountered Christian scriptures. And he read, and for the first time, it made sense. And then later he met some missionaries and he ended up giving his life to Christ and not only that, gave his life then to reaching other Hindu people in uh, India. Um, there's, there's stories that are even wilder than that of people were, that were seeking God. And uh, I remember one, that guy was rolling handmade cigarettes and they used pages out of a Gideon Bible, and he finally stopped and read a verse and came to Christ. Um, or leaflets blowing in the wind. Or God in the Muslim world uh, intervening through dreams. Yeah, dreams and visions. Dreams. Like about a fourth of the Muslims who are coming to Christ around the world are having supernatural dreams and visions. So I think God is God has his ways of intervening. And, and people, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people reached that we don't know about. Um, uh, but the last thing I just want to add is, I don't want to bank people's eternity on happening to be rolling a cigarette with a Gideon Bible page. I think it's cool when it happens. But Jesus told us to go into the world and make disciples, go into all the world. And uh, in uh, 
uh, Acts 1.8, it says, you know, start in Jerusalem, but then Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. And I'm glad, you're, you know, you're in a church here that has missionaries and supports people who bring the gospel to other parts of the world. And we should all give to that and pray for that and have passion for it because, uh, you know, even though God can intervene in supernatural ways, his plan A is to send us or to send people that we support. Yeah. So I think we need to do that and be passionate about it. Yeah, I'd say a couple things uh, just to build on that for a second. Uh, one is uh, the Bible tells us that everyone has a moral standard written on their heart by God and violates that standard. We sin, and, and that's why we feel guilty when we do something wrong. So we all have sinned. Uh, it also says that we know from the created world that God exists, and yet our tendency is to suppress that and to go the other way, for which we deserve eternal separation from God. But as Mark said, and the Bible also says, Old Testament, New Testament, if you sincerely seek the one true God, you'll find a way to encounter him and to know him. And I think it's important to know in Genesis, it specifically says that uh, will not the judge of the world do what's right? Yeah. In other words, God will be fair. And there will be, as one famous person said, nobody, after, after being judged by God, will be able to authentically walk away and shake their fists and say, that was unfair. Mm. We will see, ultimately, the fairness of God. Good. So I hope that's helpful. Um, question over here. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Diana. Um, Hi. This question comes from my 11-year-old daughter. Oh, those I, are the toughest. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't answer it. Yeah. Um, and it kind of goes back to the evil um, question y'all had earlier. But uh, what she asked me was, why is it when you feel like you need God the most and you cry out for God the most, he's either silent or worse yet, you hear nothing but the Satan's lies about how he's not real. Why are you crying out to him? Mm. Um, things along those lines. Yeah, great question. And, and uh, uh, great to get a sincere question from a youngster. Yeah. Um, you know, I have, I have a friend who said, and, and this, is, this sounds a little harsh, and I, I don't mean it that way, but it's, uh, the way he says it is kind of powerful. He says, and he says, don't tell me that God is silent if your Bible is closed. Um, in other words, God speaks to us in different ways. And I know there's that feeling of where are you in the midst of my suffering? Where are you when I'm hurting? And we feel like he's silent. Uh, but the truth is he's, he's given us uh, uh, his word that, that has so much wisdom for us to access in those times of, of suffering. Um, and so God is able to and does, I think, communicate in those moments through his written word um, what else would you say to that? Well, yeah, I would say there are things we can do to invite his presence in and his wisdom and his comfort. And one of them certainly is reading the Bible. Another is just uh, spending time in prayer. But sometimes it's in the silence of a prayer closet that you feel that silence. Yeah. Uh, and other times you feel his presence, you know. And I think sometimes he, we grow through those silent periods. Um, but, but I think reading the Word, I think sometimes you, you invite his at, the atmosphere, uh, the, the kind of his presence in by putting on some worship music. A lot of us, I think, have felt that. When you put on the right kind of music, all of a sudden, and you hear scriptural lyrics, and it reminds you of God's presence, and I think that can help. I think 
making sure you're in fellowship and not trying to be a lone ranger Christian. A lot of us, we, we're out there on our own, and God didn't intend that. He wanted us to be in community, and that's why, you know, the church emphasizes small groups and getting in fellowship so that, you know, someone else can be like Jesus to you, and, and you feel God's presence through the people around you. So I would see some of those things, and again, some of those, you know, Jesus spent 40 days alone in the desert and was tempted by the devil, and I think sometimes there are periods that God allows us go, to go through that are hard, but if we respond and keep the faith, he, we can really grow through those. Yeah, as well. and what an opportunity for us as parents or grandparents, because I have an 11-year-old granddaughter, uh, to be in their life, to be the words of Jesus, to be the love of Jesus, to be the arms <laughs> of Jesus, to hold them and encourage them, and to speak to them words of love and encouragement in those difficult times. Um, so I hope that's helpful. Yeah. We got to do lightning round here. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah we're running out of time. So yes, question over here. Um, I have no problem talking about Christ in my testimony when somebody asks me, and I've had the opportunity to do so. But I have a lot of neighbors, just as an example, that are from all over the world, and they practice different, like Hinduism. And yeah. I have no talent of approaching them and confronting them about their false religion. Um, am I wrong or am I still serving the way that I'm meant to serve and other introverts like me? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say a couple things real, really quickly. And that one is just hospitality. Just inviting that neighbor, their Hindu, say, hey, we're from different cultures. I'd like, love to get to know you more and hear about your, your background and uh, do you like pizza? Or do you, and and, and the, you know, if you do that, What's interesting is a lot of other cultures around the world are much more hospitality-oriented than ours. And first of all, and, and also I've read statistics that foreigners in our country, like foreign students, only you know, like 15% of them ever get invited into an American home. They, they go to school here four or five years, and vast majority never get invited into a home. So if we would open up and say, I don't need to know everything, I just need to be loving and make some good food and find out if there's certain things they can't eat and, and then be And know, ask sensitive. them questions. About and their... ask them, yeah. And then have them over have a meal. They will invite you back. And then you're going to try something interesting. You might love it, you know. Um, but, uh, and you build a friendship. And then just ask them questions. And and don't, you know, say, is it okay if I ask, like, so you went to the temple as a kid, what was that like, what did, and do you, be, you believe that those idols are gods, or what, and just ask them, and you don't have to feel this pressure, I, now I have to refute this, or I have, just, just ask them, and as you ask those questions, you're going to find it natural then to uh, They're going to ask you back. Well, they're well, going to ask you, you back, but also you're going to, you know, you want to do some reading and learn more and make it a journey together to understand each other better, and you will form a friendship, and God might use you, and it might take months or years, but he might use you to eventually introduce them to the Savior, and you'll have a great adventure along the way. So I would urge you to step out and, and broaden it and say, I don't have to know all about this to, to form a friendship. That's great. Let me, can we take one more? Is it a quickie? Sure. Okay. Hi. My name <laughs> yeah. is Clint. Hi, Clint. Just wondered, does the Bible contradict itself? Yeah, great question. And Mark and I have both written on that in my book, Case for Faith, and your book, uh, Questions Christians Hope yeah. No One Will Ask. Yeah, uh, there's certainly claims that things contradict in the Bible, and, uh, but a lot of those, I would say the vast majority, are situations where you have um, 
eyewitness testimony that is from different perspectives and give different levels of detail as eyewitness testimonies always do. And um, I'll just give you an example that's kind of a common one. But one of the Gospels says that after Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, that there was an angel at the tomb. But another Gospel says there were two angels at the tomb. So you go, well, you know, if they can't even count angels, how how can I trust this Mm -hmm. book, right? Because that's a contradiction. One angel, two angels, that... Well, here's the uh, response to that. They were giving different levels of detail. The one that said there was an angel there didn't say there was one and only one angel. If anyone tells you two, they're lying. Uh, It doesn't say that. It just gives the detail, the comments that there was an angel. It would be like if you left today and said, yeah, there was a guy on the stage at the church answering the questions. That's true. And I, I love this. Someone said this in math. He said, wherever there's two, there's also one. (laughs) <laughs> so as long as you don't say there was only one guy on the stage you just say there was a guy on the stage answering the question but then your wife who's a little more detail oriented says there were two guys on the stage well oh yeah okay I just was only mentioning one of them well that's the nature of eyewitness testimony and that's most of what people call contradictions is just like that and there have been huge books written about um, reconciling what appear on the surface to be um, uh, errors or contradictions. So thanks for that question. We are really running short on time. We're going to wrap it up with a quick video and a final comment. Let's go to video number 10. Yesterday when we were reading scripture, it was either this morning or yesterday morning, I said to him at the end, it was like, I don't get it. Why would he do that? Why would God give up his son for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It baffles me. So that's, that's my good, question. Okay. That is in some ways the hardest question. Why would God so love the world he would send his only begotten son? You know, when you look at the things we do to each other and the, you know, the shootings in uh, New Zealand and the human trafficking and the injustice and the prejudice and all the things that happen in our world by us to each other, you say, why would God even mess with this planet? And yet the answer is right there in the verse I quoted, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. And it's inexplicable, really. I mean, why would he love us? I don't know, but I'm thankful he does. You matter to the Father. And you go, well, not me, because I've done too many wrong things. Yes, you. Jesus came for sinners. That's us. And it's good news, isn't it? I mean, no matter what you've done, you are not beyond the reach of God's love, his grace, his forgiveness, and his redemption. And for, you know, we've gone through a lot of questions, and a lot of it might seem a little detailed or philosophical, but for Lee and me both, and I know for this church, all of this points back to this question and that answer, that we have a, thankfully, a loving God who cares deeply for you and who cares so much and loves you so much that Jesus came to pay the penalty you and I, all of us, deserve. We deserve death for our sins. He died for us. And all we have to do is respond to his love and his offer of grace and say, yes, Jesus, I need you. I want you to be my forgiver. I want you to take over my life. I want you to lead me and make me your child. Adopt me into your family. And he promises he'll do that. 
And so to me, the, you know, that gets back to the good news called yeah. the gospel, yeah. that God loves sinners like us, and you can know him today. You can trust in him. Yeah, I think the screens are going nuts with that. Uh, <laughs> you know, we had 30 people last hour who said, you know what, my sticking point's been resolved. And they prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And maybe your sticking yeah. point has been resolved. So I just want to offer you an opportunity. If you want to receive this free gift of God's grace, be adopted as his child, why not do it right now? Yeah, why not? I mean, it's just it's What's the best holding offer you in eternity. Exactly, you know? exactly. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. If you want to take that step, just in your mind, God will hear you. Just say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the Son of God. And I confess the obvious, which is that I am a sinner. And I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive your free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased for me on the cross when you died for my sins. Help me, Lord Jesus, to live the kind of life that you want me to live because from this moment on, I am yours. Yes. And now, Father, we celebrate as you do in heaven. When any sinner repents, receives forgiveness through your son, we, we're still celebrating those 30 folks and those five folks from last night. And, and, and we celebrate that. And we pray for those that are still on the journey, that still have sticking points. God, may you use this church, may you use books, whatever, to help them get resolution so that someday we can celebrate their rebirth as well. So we thank you that you are a God who welcomes questions, a God who is real and alive and offers us new life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. One last thing I'll mention before we go. Um, Mark's two books, as I say, Confident Faith, which is the 20 arrows of evidence that point toward the truth of Christianity, and then uh, questions Christians hope no one will ask. I mean, much more detail and, and other questions that didn't come up tonight or we didn't have time to uh, go through. Um, these are great resources, especially for kids. If you have high school kids or junior high or whatever, they're a great resource and investment in their future because they will be challenged for their faith. I virtually guarantee it at some point. So we got, we got a great deal where you can get these, both of these, real inexpensively. Mark's going to be over in the bookstore afterwards. We'll be glad to sign copy for you at our um, remote site, our other campus. We already have signed copies available for you as well. But there's a great opportunity to continue to grow in this area. Mark, thanks so much. Let's thank Mark for being here thank today. You. Thanks, man. God thanks. bless you. Give it up for Lee as well. Thanks, man. Thank you. Hey church, thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.